the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. And I just did that thing where my brain went blank. Oh, you ever have that where you're like, where where am I right now? What yes. is it? You <laughs> kind of looking around like, what are we doing? Some frightening places for that to happen. One, doing a radio show. <laughs> Two, while driving. Yes. And three, preaching a sermon. You ever had that happen? I, you know, I have had those moments where you're like kind of outside of yourself. And yes, it's like, exactly. And all of a sudden you're like, I'm not really engaged in what I'm saying at the moment. <laughs> Does that um, freak you out a little bit? It really does. They're like out of body, like, oh, why'd yeah. you wear those shoes, no, Ian? Oh, so wait, get back in there. Mine's usually like I'm looking, I've caught eyes with someone and I'm like, what are they thinking right now? <laughs> what are they? What is that person? Uh, oh, I need to talk to that person. And uh, and the number four is when your wife is telling you something that you're supposed to be listening to. And that's never happened to me. Never. Mm-hmm. I'm always dialed in and focused. One hundred percent. Nice. All right. A couple of things. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash the Common Good on Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can call us on the telephone if you know what that is. It's 312-660-2594. Plus, got to say it. You're a podcaster. Thank you, thank you, thank mm-hmm. you for listening, liking, subscribing, reviewing. And uh, if you feel so inclined, hit that share button. Share it with a friend or an enemy. Either or. We would love to uh, engage in that way. And if you have suggestions for us on the show, uh, we're always willing to get engaged with that. And uh, full disclosure, I think this whole first hour is going to be articles that you found, which is a risk. Sometimes is that right? sort of, I think so. We kind of have this sort of give and take when we arrange what we're going to talk about. And uh, uh, it's curious because I, anyway, I think there's a, a thread here that we're going to see emerge a little bit, but why don't you, uh, huh. why don't you lead us off of this first one? I'm now I'm trying to think what that thread might be. Yeah, me too. I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> It'll emerge. We'll see it. It'll emerge. <laughs> the thread will reveal itself. So the first story is a hard one. And one to, um, that I think is important. Uh, you and I have talked often since we've started the show uh, about the topic of abortion. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm going to put words in your mouth, but I feel like both of us have said this is uh, this is a passion point for us mm-hmm. and a uh, one that I think I think the church uh, needs to be willing to really dig their heels in. We talked mm-hmm. about that the other day about mm-hmm. are there issues you dig your heels in versus not. I feel like this is a dig our heels in issue. Yeah, it's not as black and white as I think people make it to be. But uh, over the overarching um, uh, topic of abortion, I think it's something that we as Christ followers and as the church need to stand up and be uh, vocal and strong about. And so with that in mind, there was an article at theblaze.com uh, uh, about Alyssa Milano. Actress Alyssa Milano, she says it said she's made a big name for herself due to her left wing activism, particularly regarding abortion rights. And so Alyssa Milano, actress through many different things. You might remember she first started at Who's the Boss in the mid 80s. Oh, right. Loved Who's the Boss. You did? Oh, Who's the Boss then went straight into Growing Pains. Boom. <laughs> but um, see to me, 
As an aside, this is what we're talking about. Yep. Who's the boss? Can't hold a flame to growing pains. Agreed. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Like, who's the boss? You couldn't have had growing pains going into who's the boss. You couldn't right. have gone that Touché. way. I'm I'll say this, you. though. Wonder Years and Cheers blows both of them out of the water. Wonder Years is probably my favorite show that's ever existed. Come on. High five across there the desk. There we go. And Bringing that, people together. And then, you know, Seinfeld in the office like others. But I, the Wonder Years... Like, I cry at that all the time. I'll still cry. And I'll it's not since on. having kids, I'll cry a whole lot more. Oh, and I gotta find if someone knows where that's on. Let us know because other than we also have Netflix Google right in front of us. the YouTube probably. Uh, but Sorry, this isn't what we're talking about. Sorry. I love the Wonder Years. Yeah, Sorry same. that you are right. We just went from serious to nothing. Now back to serious. Uh, but anyway, actress Alyssa Milano revealed that she had two abortions in 1993 when she was in her early 20s. Uh, here's what she said. Uh, it says Milano fell in love with actor Scott Wolf that year while making Double Dragon. They moved in together, became engaged just for months, just months after that. Milano said she was on the pill because she knew she was not ready to be a parent uh, as she pursued her career. And then she still got pregnant. Milano said it was an emotional experience, especially coming from a Catholic background, but that she was, quote, not equipped to be a mother. So I chose to have an abortion. I chose it was my choice and it was absolutely the right choice for me. Uh, while she acknowledged not that it was not an easy choice or something that she wanted or needed, uh, it was something that I needed, I should say, she said, like most health care is. After her abortion, she remained on birth control, but then still got pregnant again. Mm. Uh, and once again, she's quoted as saying, I made the right decision to end my pregnancy. Milano noted that her life today wouldn't be nearly as good had she not had her abortion. She goes on to talk about, I probably wouldn't have had the kids that I have now. I, I probably wouldn't be married to the person I'm married now and uh, and so on uh, and so forth. Milano added that her reasons for having abortions are, quote, real. And as with other women, such decisions are ours uh, and none of your business, the outlet said. And so uh, I've never maybe I have. But when you read somebody be this upfront and vocal and dare I use the word proud of uh, their justifications for having abortion. I find it both really sad, really difficult, and it makes me angry. Like, mm. it's just it's just hard to read. And when yeah. I read it, to say uh, she opted for two abortions in 1993 that, quote, my life would be completely lacking of all its great joys today is really, really striking and hard. Yeah. And for me, it goes, okay, uh, that that gives a window into... into uh, uh, that other side I'm using air quotes uh, of the, of the conversation. Um, and and it, it makes me go, man, this, this is something that we have to talk about. Well, and it, it makes me think of uh, a Twitter thread I referenced probably a couple months ago now. And it was a woman who said I was raised in a, a very left, very progressive environment and home. And there was certain rhetoric that I had always sort of kind of held to and admits she's like, I'm still certainly left leaning, but she kind of hits like five or six things that, she thinks we really need to start talking about in this debate. And one of them really stuck with me. She said, I've literally met dozens of women who have had abortions. Mm. And not one of them, not one of them is like proud or relieved they did it. Yeah. Now you could talk about, like you said, obviously it can be a very complicated, gray, tough conversation. Uh, we, I think, have kind of showed our cards about yep. our convictions around that it's a sanctity of life issue, yep. uh, but also needing the church to be the church mm-hmm. and see kind of the broad holistic call here. And it can't just be about legislation, although legislation helps save lives. Um, but kind of her comment that, man, this this whole idea that that women are or should be wearing it as a badge of honor. She said, not only do I not think it's right, I don't think it's accurate. 
You know, this is someone mm-hmm. who's met dozens of women. All of them identify how deeply painful yeah. it was and how in many ways uh, it had impacts far reaching, far deeper than they were ever told that it would. And uh, I, just, I think that's a really important part of the component. And I'm like too. staring at the headline where she says, like you said, if I hadn't opted for two abortions in 1993, my life would be completely lacking all its great joys. Yeah, that it's does great. make me really sad. It really does. And there's a flippancy to it that is, you know, she's either saying it to guard herself and maybe make a point or it's really how she feels. Because I also have heard a lot yeah. about what you're talking about, where people say across the aisle, generally people who have abortions end up with regret and pain and 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 just issues dealing with it stemming Hmm. from it Hmm. so to read this i just find it really disturbing and it makes me both sad and angry and and wanting to engage it more and more uh but man i there's a there's a shock value i got to be honest for me in reading that headline and maybe that was the point and you know to to be totally fair the blaze does do a lot for shock value you know like honestly even just knowing the source is a big deal and we've i mean how many times have we tackled this particular topic since january yeah a lot eight nine probably ten like it's it is it's a really heavy topic and i hope that you hear in our voice that we're we're identifying it as heavy and hard and difficult every single time we talk about it we want to love people well we want to love people like jesus and we want to be the kinds of church that doesn't just pontificate on ideas but actually is the hand and feet of jesus and we're stumbling every day but trying our best to figure out what that looks like all right so coming up next though Hard right turn. Uh, a study found uh, that Babylon Bee's satire gets shared by people who think it's real. We're going to talk about <laughs> social media, the nature of satire, and uh, sometimes how easily duped we are. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. How you doing? It's your good buddy, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> my good buddy Brian. So was I, I, was, I meant it to sound friendly. It probably came across more creepy than I anticipated. I think it was friendly. It's fine. It was like creepy friendly. I thought that we creepy friendly. <laughs> That's the worst combo ever. Creepy friendly is not something that you put on a resume. Like, here's my GPA. Here's my employment. <laughs> what is uh, your personality traits? I'm creepy yeah, friendly. Kind of a creepy friendly. <laughs> kind of like uh, wave at a distance, but don't shake his hand, guys. Stay away from that guy. <laughs> well, anyway, you can find us all over the place. Facebook at, what's the Facebook? The Common Good Radio Show. Yes. 1160hope.com slash the common good. <laughs> You're struggling with where you can oh find boy. this. We have it written all over the walls, Podcasts too. Podcasts everywhere. Podcasts are everywhere. Brian's going to list a bunch of places. No, I'm going to look at Twitter, though, because that's the that's the new test right there. I mean, podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. Wow. Yeah. Look at you. The other the other ones that John told us last week. Squeaker or <laughs> Spritzker or Spritzker. The governor. <laughs> LaCroix. Anywho, uh, yeah, if you can find and like and subscribe, any of that stuff actually does help us out. Anything that you find compelling and interesting and you want to tweet or share or send to a friend, honestly, any of that helps. Plus, uh, those are all good methods to get back to us. If you have ideas for a story or an angle or a perspective or a topic, uh, we really, really do desire for this show to be for all of us. So if you have a thing that you'd love for us to kind of tackle or dive in on or avoid at all costs, feel free to send that our way and uh, we'd be happy to engage with it. One of the things that I, I find interesting about um, a new kind of digital age, and we talked about this last week uh, a couple of times, 
is the the rise in popularity of Babylon B. Do you follow Babylon B? I do. I How do. would you describe Babylon B to someone listening that's like, I don't know what that is at all? So uh, this might be another site that you might not be aware of, but think of The Onion, but for Christians. Right. So it's like the Christian onion. So it's satire. It's meant to right. through and through. Through and through. And uh, the Babylon B is really funny. So you can follow them on Twitter. Uh, also, I did. I have noticed. I'd love your because I know you follow them as well. You and I will share their sites back and forth. Like, did you see this one? Uh, it has it gone from just kind of straight out funny to a little bit uh, pointed and partisan over the last yeah. couple months or two. And I don't know what the reason is for that. I but, think some of the leadership has shifted okay, in the last six months, okay. too. And that might be part of it. Because I did see, I think it was uh, Sky Jatani who said uh, a month ago or so on Twitter, like, does anyone else notice that the Babylon Bee is a little more partisan these days? And people all started weighing in. But at its core, it's satire. It looks right. at things in the Christian world, the evangelical world, but also the political world and and sets up things that look like real articles, uh, but they're just satire and funny to kind of make a point. Well, and that's the thing about satire is that not everyone knows it is satire. Yeah, if it's and here's the other well. thing about satire, because you and I can both be a little snarky at times. Yes. And it's interesting how quickly that switch is flipped when it's snarkiness that we agree with. We're like, yeah, get them. Yep. snarkiness we don't agree with. We're like, well, that was a bit much. That, was, <laughs> <laughs> that seems unfair. Ooh, tough shot right there. Which is maybe all of us, right? Yep. Like when it's our team or our perspective, we're like, yeah, that's, f- oh, everyone else needs to just kind of get over it. But they have in... uh I think recent memory a number of times posted something. I thought ah, that might be more divisive than what's yeah. helpful. We've yep. maybe veered into different territory, but uh, Christianity today published this article and says uh, study Babylon B's satire gets shared by people who think it's real. So <laughs> we obviously were interested in this topic, this idea, because I don't know if you've personally encountered this. I have had a number of people share an article with me from this site. Yes. Thinking that it's real really outraged by its conclusion. And I don't know either one, why that keeps happening or two, what the correct response is to that. Like yep. how, 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 uh, unaware of, of this perspective must you be to really, and maybe people aren't really reading it. Maybe it's some of the yep. outrage culture yep. that we see. They just see a headline and they click share, but why don't you uh, walk us through some of the nitty gritty of what they're reporting on here? Yeah. It, and so Snopes in July published a piece fact checking a story based on Babylon B, which is a, a satire, which is funny in and of itself that Snopes is, is doing that. <laughs> right. Um, and so Babylon B has been kind of in the, in the news, but then they talk about other stuff like the onion, um, uh, and they say sometimes it's the satire is easy to spot. So they give an example when the Babylon Bee reported that President Trump had appointed Joe Biden to head up the Transportation Security Administration based on, quote, Biden's skill getting inappropriately close to people and making unwanted physical advances. Mm. You might think that's funny. You might think that's inappropriate. Right. Clearly not true. Was their point. Yeah, right. But the way this article goes is it's about satire in general, but also specifically here about the Babylon Bee. And you touched on it is that increasingly people are believing the stories. Um, and and so uh, they found this. Uh, members of both parties, that being Republican and Democrat, failed to recognize that the Babylon Bee is satire, uh, but Republicans were considerably, considerably more likely to do so. Of the hmm. 23 falsehoods that came to be, eight were more confidently believed by at least 15% of Republican respondents one of the most widely believed falsehood was based on a series of made-up quotes attributed to Representative Elon Omar, a satirical art, a satirical article that suggested that Senator Bernie Sanders had criticized the billionaire who paid off the Morehouse College graduate student debt was another falsehood that Republicans oh, no. 
fell for. Their surveys also featured nine falsehoods that emerged from the onion. Here, Democrats were more often fooled, though they weren't quite as credulous. So it's it's also seems like whatever bent that satire uh, piece takes, those are the people who are more likely to fall for it. Uh, and so uh, the the point of this article is, man, we've got to be really careful, people, like not just to quickly share things on Facebook and Twitter to do your homework and figure out, is this satire? Is this true? Is this I'm using air quotes, fake news? <laughs> what is this before sending it to all sorts of people? Because we've all gotten them. We've gotten the the email forwards from a family member or a Facebook share where you're like, uh, that's not true. Here's how we know this. And the person's like, oh, I'm sorry. But the I'm sorry isn't helpful because once it's been shared, other people begin believing it. And that's where it becomes problematic. Well, and, and identifying and parsing the difference is actually, I think, a lot harder than we realize. Like I was mm-hmm. kind of speaking a little tongue in cheek earlier, but I think, you know, to recognize satire, you probably have to be at least you have to have a cursory understanding of the topic being yeah joked about. Right. Yep. And if you're not. That's the thing that kind of drives me a little crazy because there are times and I, you know, I have friends and family that are much more diligent in this area than me, but someone will post something and they'll comment right away and say, actually, this isn't founded anything. It's not even like a satirical post. It's a meme and someone may making a pretty serious claim. And, you know, I have I have some friends and family that are so much smarter than me. So they're like source and they're like, this isn't actually true. I would recommend you take this down. And just, the person that posted it will say, oh, I didn't know all that. Thanks. But they'll leave the original <laughs> inflammatory post up. And I think, yep. don't we have a responsibility when, and obviously not everything is black and white. Very few things are black and white. Yep. But when you're staring down the actual raw facts of like, hey, the thing you just posted is actually outright wrong. Yep. People are like, well, sorry about that. But then we leave it up for the rest of the internet yep. to kind of like that to me shows that we we have veered away, I think, from even the diligence in how we how we pursue like real true facts. And that I think is concerning. And I might be painting with a really broad brush here. So you can tell me if if you think I'm wrong on this in my sphere, it feels like this is also um, it's not equal in proportion. People who are a little like in the next generation from us, a little bit older who maybe didn't grow up with the internet or grew Mm -hmm. up with it, but grew up with news in a different way. Right. I find them at least in my sphere of people to be the percentage of fake stuff that gets shared comes from that demographic more and mm. more. And that might have to do with how we've consumed news through our lifetime. Like my kids are probably going to be better at seeing satire than I will be online. Oh, and I'm probably better than my parents. And uh, so the number of Facebook forwards I've gotten, I don't know even what that means, but I think that I guess I would make the point that the less familiar you are with this kind of stuff, just be more diligent. Like we, yeah. we need to be people who are trying to at least share stuff. If we feel the need to share stuff at all, make sure you're sharing stuff that, you know, uh, has a really high probability of being true and trustworthy. Or if and, you're going to post satire, be really clear that it's satire, yeah, right? Hey, isn't this hilarious? <laughs> <laughs> the B got it again. But even that isn't maybe yep. necessarily cl- to say this is hilarious could be some kind of political commentary. I, I think yep. a but, good point. But yep. even that, uh, see, now I want to talk out of both sides of my mouth because sometimes like explaining a joke is the worst part of telling a joke if you have yep. to explain it. So sometimes, you know, it doesn't feel like we have to add all these disclaimers like, okay, yep. this is fake, satirical site. Like at what point you know, do we actually, like you said, what was the word you used? Diligence. I think yep. that's a good yep. word. Yep. Say, can we be diligent in our pursuit of information and how we perceive information? And I think uh, the more and more we can do that, the better off we're all going to be. All right. Well, coming up next, a music industry veteran breaks down everything culture gets wrong about success. This is a topic that you and I have talked a good deal about that I think is super, super fascinating. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
This one always makes me think we're like heading into a dance club together. Like this is, I don't want to do that. Like you don't want to go to a dance club with me? Let's no. do a segment. Let's do a whole show live from a dance club. Nope. Think about it. I thought about it. I don't want to do that. I'd like to ask you to pray about it, Brian Fromm. Just go before the Lord in prayer. Done. Not going to do it. <laughs> that wasn't enough time to really, truly, you have to be quiet okay. before the Lord. And see if he doesn't direct your footsteps to right. do a radio segment with your friend Ian. You take this segment. I'm going to sit here quietly. At an underground dance club. I'll <laughs> yeah. shoot that really backfired. Uh, you can find us all over the place if you want. Facebook. Uh, what is the Facebook? Facebook.com the slash com- the yes. Common Good Radio Show. Uh, Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can call us at 312-660-2594. 1160hope.com slash the Common Good. And uh, podcasts. All kinds of podcasts. And uh, I really think... This is super fascinating to me because uh, any article that breaks down a little bit, um, wh- how easily we are duped into believing that success is the thing that's going to like complete us yes. or give us purpose or once I'll get this, then I'll feel blank. That is something as a pastor that I hear all the time. Maybe not that bluntly mm-hmm. or that succinctly, but don't you but find in that practice. in ministry? Oh my yes. goodness. Yes. I can trace back so many conversations to, oh, ultimately you've bought in. To whatever the myth or the lie is that if I could get this or accomplish this, then I'll feel blank. And yep. uh, I just think this article does a good job of doing that. But it takes a, an interesting tack, particularly in the music industry. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a guy by the name of Mark Maxwell. He's an entertainment lawyer and a music business veteran, it says. But he's also committed to he's also a committed Christian with a unique and refreshing perspective on integrity and success. Uh, Maxwell was once a record label executive, but he doesn't approach life, it says, in the stereotypical way some might expect, rather than putting business, money, and materialism first. He follows a different blueprint. He's now the author of a new book called Networking Kills, Success Through Serving, and he believes that too many of us are getting the quest and blueprint for success entirely wrong. He says, what does the Bible teach? Jesus taught that if you want to be great, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be successful, it's about laying down your life for others, serving others. Hmm. He added that the culture encourages people to go out and take and use others, but that Christ teaches humans to go out and give. He says those two worldviews are really at odds. And then interestingly, one area where Maxwell sees society going wrong on the success front is in this massive push for young people to engage in rampant networking Hmm. with the, how can you serve me attitude that comes with networking? He said the process can encourage young people to be too focused on exploiting people instead of giving and serving people. And so it goes on, on, but man, I'm, I'm with this guy on this, but it's, it's, uh, uh, it is, it is Jesus's words, right? Lay down your life, serve other people. But as you just touched on, it's a really hard way to live your life. I think he summarizes it really well right here. Actually he says, God began to show me that success and fruitfulness in my law practice has to start with care and service of others. Mm. As I care and serve others, as opposed to promoting myself, that's the best marketing I can do, which I think, it's so true. And as I'm hearing you read this, I just, I'm like nodding the whole time. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. If that is the case, why is it so rare? Yeah. Why is self-promotion uh, or, or even just networking? Networking maybe doesn't seem quite as much like self-promotion, but don't you find that that so often is the motive of like, ooh, how can I, I got to sit next to the most powerful person yeah. at the table or I need to like make this connection or, or what can these people do for my advancement in yeah, my life? Right. Yeah. Well, and I think it's a, I've used the quote before Ebert Hubbard said the true measure of a man is how he treats someone who can do him absolutely no good. Mm. I think that's such a good litmus test, such a good Great. rubric. Watch plenty of people, especially in our line of work in ministry where the quote unquote brand of pastor, mm. we know at least needs to look like compassionate and kind. So often I'll, I'll encourage people, watch how they treat the janitor. 
Mm. Watch how they treat the secretary. Watch how they treat people that, you know, maybe aren't in the limelight or don't like further their career. And this is something young leaders, I think, really struggle with because they're all about the hustle and they're all about, which again, Hustle's good. Hustle's good. Networking yeah. is good. Building relationships is good. All that's good. It's but about it's, the purpose it's, about, it. it's about purpose and motivation. I yeah. think that's that's easy to miss. And I think the, to go back to your original question as to what makes this so difficult to live out, because I think sometimes the fruitfulness of serving others is not immediate, right? Like, or it's no, not it even takes time. It takes time. Or yeah. it's not even clearly quantifiable. Hmm. Like if, if the goal is to make as much money for yourself as possible, then probably serving others may not be the best route. Mm. So it also begs the question, what do you, what are you trying to get out of life? Like what is, what does success look like? Yeah. And so, um, and, and we just, I mean, it's the, it's the stream we all swim in. It's yeah. what do you do? You self promote and you advance and you climb the corporate ladder or you get your name out there. Or you get as, many likes and follows as you get, whatever else it might be so that you're advancing so that you can keep going. Uh, And again, nothing wrong with advancement, nothing wrong with even networking, like you said and stuff. But ultimately do we believe Jesus's words that, um, that he kind of maps out for us abundant life. And and he calls us to serve others, to lay down our lives, to put others in front of ourselves. Like that's where the rubber meets the road. Like if I actually could live that out perfectly, which I know Mm. none of us can, but let's pretend we can, if I could live that out perfectly, uh, what would the end result be for me? Yeah, right, right. Would, would I enjoy that life? And I think deep down, a lot of us don't think we would. So the example that I'm thinking of as I'm hearing you talk is, uh, and I'm sure I've, I'm sure I've ranted about this before, hmm. uh, is car mechanics. Anytime you move to a new city, it's always one of the first things that I think of. Like, okay, I need who's my guy, who's my car mechanic, yep. and the thing that blows my mind, and what I kind of hear you saying is long, long game versus short game. Yep. There's so many mechanics. That will that will rip you off at every turn to try to squeeze every dime out of you. But the irony is, when you find a good mechanic who like treats you right, shoots you straight, don't you tell everybody you everybody. know about him or her? Everybody. Like the the irony of all of that when you talk about like, oh, is it more about advancement or is it about serving people? The big irony for me is that when you actually serve people, I think it advances you yes. way better. Yes. You get both. And this idea that like, ooh, this guy doesn't he seems like he doesn't know about cars. I'm gonna sucker him. If I find that out, I'm also telling everybody, don't go to this guy. Like, it's so strange to me that treating people right and serving them well and having integrity and being honest doesn't seem like it's immediately valuable. It's like, oh, I could make a quick buck on this guy now or, man, if I treat him right, maybe he'll tell five friends who will tell five friends who will tell five friends. And that, I think, maybe comes down to patience. Maybe people don't want to play the long game. They're like, I need networks now. I need advancement now. I need a presence or a following now. And so we take shortcuts and I think, man, when you take shortcuts, stuff like this, it, it, and just never ends well, you know? And it's interesting as a parent, I wonder, I'm just thinking out loud here. What does it look like to, to embed this in your kids early on in life? Mm. Uh, Because we, how many stories have we done this week about kids doing unbelievably servant things, but we keep going, that's so crazy. Like what does it look like to be intentional with my children to be like, Mm. here's what it looks like to serve others. Here's why we do it. I'm not sure it's something I do well. I think I'm just kind of thinking out loud, like what, how do you even do that? How do we embed that in our kids? So they understand the gospel, what Jesus is calling to you. And that, that this is kind of a great way that you should be orienting your life while you follow Jesus. When you think about Philippians to the kenosis hymn of Jesus emptying himself out, right? Not, not considering equality with God, something to be grasped, something to Mm -hmm. white knuckle. And I think if that's part of the example of like, yeah, even if the position or, or leverage or authority is rightfully yours, who else had more right to ultimate 
power and praise. Oh, absolutely. And denied himself that for the sake of the world. Right. I think if that is the person that we are to model our lives at, not just pray a prayer to so we go to heaven when we die, but to actually, yep. you know, be covered in the dust of our rabbi's sandals. Like this idea of actually living like that, you know, I think of, uh, I think it was Ken Blanchard who said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Mm. And that distinction yeah. is, it's not a denigration of who you are. It's saying, man, I know so much of who I am in Christ. I actually don't have to scream in every meeting. Yep. I don't always have to throw an elbow to get ahead because yep. ultimately I, my identity isn't tied up in all of this I can stuff. lift other people up. I can, totally. I, you know, I can not humble brag and be like, oh, you know, but I can instead <laughs> actually point to other people yes. and say, uh, they're the hero. They're the star. That's right. They're the ones. And, and uh, it is certainly a different way of living compared to what our culture kind of pounds into our heads every day. It's so worth it. Well, coming up next, the power of biblical hospitality, four characteristics that I think will surprise you around this topic that often I think it's really misused around biblical hospitality. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, also producer John, affectionately known as PJ. What's up, PJ? What's up, PJ? He's just staring at us. That's yep. just a dead, cold stare. Yeah, I don't think he likes the nickname. You don't think PJ's going to stick? I mean, I think he'll stick as the producer. I don't think the job, <laughs> the, uh, the name. Wait, so does the name stick only if he likes it? Because him not liking it. Almost makes it more likely it's just going to stick. Say, the less he likes it, the more likely it is to stick. I, I think that's the reason why it's stuck to begin with the last week or so. Oh, has it's anyone else I expressed like, yeah, this, you know, I just didn't like it. You're, you're kind of revealing the true nature of our hearts, which yep. is dark and cold. And I apologize. <laughs> yep. But, but it will continue. <laughs> <laughs> that's great for the show and the stage. Appreciate yeah. Weren't we talking yeah. about apologies that weren't really apologies? Yep. Isn't that a thing we talked there about? There's one of them. <laughs> Anywho. Well, uh, you can find us on Facebook at the common good radio show. 1160 hope.com slash the common good. Uh, you can also call us through in two six, six, zero two five nine four. And I, I think articles like this are interesting to me because when it comes to the, the topic of hospitality, I think, especially in church context, oftentimes hospitality gets this really narrow definition of just like snack time or yes. the refreshments. And we call that hospitality, hospitality yes. corner, or this is the hospitality ministry, which please hear this is a beautiful part of the yes. church function. Some of the best people I've ever met oversee the hospitality portion of their local church. But I think hospitality is actually way more subversive and way more radical yes. than we typically give it credit for. Because like even, even at its core, the etymology, the root of the Greek word hospitality is love of the other, love mm. of the stranger. It's this like welcoming when everyone else is saying, oh, no, thank you. Hospitality says, yeah, get in here. And nice. I think, couldn't we use a little more of that in our boots in the ground local ministry and our lives in general? What does it look like to be hospitable in a biblical sense? So why don't you set us up and then we'll dive into these four characteristics. Sure. I love how this article is taking entertainment uh, and biblical hospitality, and how do they look different? And basically, four characteristics that distinguish between biblical hospitality and entertaining guests. Hmm. It says, true hospitality is a cultural expression of other-oriented kingdom living. It transcends regional expectations of gourmet performance and focuses its energy on the blessing of honest and sincere relationships. Uh, it isn't concerned with projecting an image of manicured lives devoid of stress, mess, and chaos. Instead, biblical hospitality flips the camera lens from a selfie to a wide angle pointed outward toward the lives of others, warmly inviting them into ours. Mm. That's really nice. That's really nice. And so uh, you, 
he goes about the rest of this article. Say, how do they look different? So let's just walk through them. Number one, these are characteristics that distinguish biblical hospitality from entertainment. Entertainment impresses hospitality blesses. I'm listening. The first distinction between entertainment and hospitality is one of orientation. Hmm. It answers the question, who is the center of attention? If I'm the center of attention, then my goal is to impress those who enter my orbit. Hmm. I want them to leave spellbound by me, my wisdom, my ability to manage life, my winsomeness, the obedience of my children or the cleanliness of my house. Wow. Entertaining others puts me on the center stage and my guests as the audience. A win is measured by the degree to which my guests leave impressed or better yet, reverential. If, on the other hand, my guests are the focus, then my goal is not to impress them, but to bless them. Sounds like what you guys are preaching. Yes, right. I want them to leave enriched and encouraged better for having been in my life. I see my guests as I see myself with pains and fears and disappointments. And hospitality becomes an opportunity to enter into those broken areas with the grace of Jesus Christ. Hospitality blesses. Oh, that is man. gold. That is really I'm good. I'm not usually a fan of just like straight up reading a whole article. I felt I couldn't stop. I just it's kept so, going. Yeah, exactly. I, seriously, the whole time I'm thinking, I don't know where I would break this. That's yeah. so good. Right, second one, number two, yeah. And I'll just read the whole thing. Uh, entertainment stresses, hospitality savers. Mm. The second distinction between entertainment and hospitality is one of aspiration so the last one was orientation this one's aspiration it answers the question what's my purpose the effort required to impress is immense because let's be honest few of us are really that impressive so we fake it we stress about how to create the illusion of something we know we don't actually possess entertaining others becomes an emotionally taxing facade that requires constant management Mm. so that no cracks can be seen can i just admit by the way this is a cardinal sin of mine. Yep. Again, as an Enneagram three, like wanting to look like you have it all together and that yep. you're impressive is is really tough. Hospitality, though, allows me to relax. I can enjoy being in the presence of another person created in the image of God. I give them attention and I listen without the need to keep all the plates around me spinning. I mm. simply savor the moment God has given me to enter the life of another and to bring them hope and help. The evening's highlight is not a well-presented table, but the precious lives seated around the table. Hospitality savers. So good. So good. Really good. Number three, entertainment babbles. Hospitality listens. Gosh darn it. The third third (laughs) distinction between entertainment and hospitality is one of communion. Mm. It answers the question, how is intimacy being fostered? Those who seek to entertain feel the pressure to fill the silence by incessantly babbling about themselves, their conquests, their children's performance, or their remarkable experiences, guilty as charged. Yeah, no kidding. Conversations same. rarely move below surface subjects, but keep everything shallow and safe. After all, how entertaining are problems? Those pursuing genuine hospitality are other-centered, demonstrating a willingness to put the other person in the spotlight. Biblical hospitality listens to stories without the need to one-up. It asks meaningful questions and allows the other the grace of being heard. Hospitality tunes spiritual ears towards the joys, pains, or fears of those sharing a meal and models an environment where relational intimacy moves easily from the superficial to spiritual. Whoa. Spiritual Hospitality listens. Again, another part of our blessed practices You're is that Elson blesses listen. Oh, yeah, we might be out of something. All right. <laughs> lastly, I might be okay if we have no time to actually talk about this. I know, this is so good. good. Lastly, uh, entertainment excludes hospitality honors. Mm. The final distinction between entertainment and hospitality is one of inclusion. It answers the question who right now is in need of Jesus love. Entertainment takes the easiest road and animates me to look for those who require the least from me to love. I entertain people who are like me, those satiating my internal need to feel important, valued and validated. 
value dated <laughs> Ian can read you can't, that's, a, that's a good combo of valued and validated I like it uh, genuine Jesus like hospitality that looks for those in need of love and honors them as esteemed guests because I'm freed from the assiduous bondage of seeking my own fulfillment I'm able to bridge cultural lines of demarcation and pursue anyone anywhere who is in need of the love of God through Jesus Christ, my home becomes a haven for guests who may not feel comfortable at my church, but who are becoming more and more open to the messenger and the message of the church. Those far from God can be the uh, and the fulfillment of their heart's longing through the simple power of biblical hospitality. Hospitality honors. And I don't know, this is not good word research here right now, mm-hmm. but I just thought of this reading all these categories that if like hospitality and hospital have the same root, Mm. wouldn't that be interesting because they both bring healing, right? They're both places of healing and wholeness. Like what if that's actually the lens through which we saw this call to be hospitable? I I love this article. This is really good. And he ends the article asking the question. He says, what about you? Are you stuck on entertainment or zealous for genuine hospitality? You might think this to be some kind of superfluous add on to the life of a kingdom disciple, but a simple glimpse at the life of our savior demonstrates that this was one of his primary means of ministry, Mm. all without a home of his own, welcoming others, eating with them, listening to their stories, ministering to their pain, holding out the invitation of the kingdom. May we rediscover and follow his example. Jeff Christofferson, that is a well-written article right there. Yeah, no kidding. Christianity Today, the power of biblical hospitality. That to me sounds like, man, God's invited us to his table. Maybe who needs to have a seat at ours? You know, like this idea of the table of this this sacred significance of every table is an altar. Every conversation is this sacred opportunity yep. to speak like life and purpose and identity back into the lives and hearts of the people around us. I mean, I am, I am super, super convicted I like it. by that. Well, you've been listening to the common good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common, our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. We have crossed the 5 p.m. line on a Thursday. (laughs) I felt it. It's like the line of demarcation. So it's like the weekend this year. Something has shifted in my spirit. It's crazy. I never knew this, but I read somewhere recently and was talking to someone who said it's the same, that especially for like younger people than us who like don't go to bed at like 930 or whatever. Uh, Guilty. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that Thursday night has become a big go out night. What? Don't people have to work on Friday? But it's like people are starting. The, hey, producer John, PJ. Hey, PJ. Oh, nope. Now he's, he's not there. Is <laughs> <laughs> uh. But they've said Thursdays are a really big go out day, which I had the same deal with. Like you're saying, like Friday's still a work day, but people are going, I'm going to go out Thursday, power through my work day Friday and then continue the weekend. OK, I know that going out doesn't always include drinking, but that was the gist of this story. Why? Which, OK, probably leads not to like some kind get, of a not like get wasted. Oh, but like OK. Go out, socialize, have some drinks, whatever else. Like Thursday is like pregame in the weekend. Exactly. But apparently this is like a big thing. Like Thursday starts the weekend now. I don't know if it's still the case, but you know what the biggest drinking day of the entire year is? Uh, like a very specific day. I'm going to make it's a, a very guess. specific day. I'm yeah. going to make it guess. In the calendar year. I'm going with 
and I this is this used to be the big party day where I grew up. So I'm going to go with it's oh. going to sound like a random random yeah. day. The day before Thanksgiving. Yes, that's it. Is it really? Which is always a Wednesday. How strange! But it's a it's holiday the next day, and a lot of people have work off and. I don't know if that's still the case. I just remember people used to, that was a big day in my hometown. I remember it and that being feeling weird. Now, part of it was because people were coming home from college, but it. Oh, it's, that makes sense. It's people that haven't seen each other yep, in a while. Again, yep. I'm staring at a Google machine, not researching this. So, <laughs> biggest <laughs> drinking day of the year. Yeah, right. <laughs> Hard hitting facts on AM 1160. <laughs> hope for your life. No one else on AM 1160 <laughs> is talking that. <laughs> That today I can almost guarantee. All right, so here's Except here's maybe Chuck Swindoll at noon. Okay. No, oh, not oh, fair. Not All right, fair. so here's here's an article. These types of articles uh, to me are always so fascinating. The headline is from Vice.com. Volunteering is the best kept secret yeah. for mental health. What's going on here? Uh, it's it is uh, an article from a non Christian uh, site, right? Like this, you seems, don't know that. No, Vice is not. And yeah, so, talking about the seven deadly sins. That's what it's the whole. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> and it's from their series on stress, which I find really interesting. So they're trying to say they're trying to diagnose stress, what causes it in the right. series, but also trying to say what uh, what relieves stress. And so it's not like what does Jesus call us to do? Right, right, right. What are we supposed to do? And so it says. Uh, it becomes this whole article about uh, volunteerism and giving of your time to other people being one of the best stress relievers there is. It says research has shown that there's evidence of volunteer work promotes that psychological well-being that we're talking about, said uh, Radlisha Sneed, a public health research associate at Michigan State University who has studied the impacts of volunteering. In my own work, I've shown it's linked to improvements in factors like depressive symptoms, purpose in life, and feeling feelings of optimism. This is a still an emerging field of study, so the underlying functions aren't fully understood yet. Uh, but it starts to go your whole brain science thing. Like you're Mr. Brain Science guy in my life. Now. I'm, I am. You are. You always bring up stuff about brain. Was science. Was there a lot of I, candidates for that position? Not. <laughs> to be Mr. Brain Science. We're one of one in that in that line. <laughs> Victory. Uh, but but it's this. Um, uh, it says Sneed has led research on the physical health benefits of volunteering. So not just the psychological ones, finding that adults over 50 who had volunteered at least five, uh, 200 hours a year had a lower risk of hypertension. No kidding. She told me there are few reasons why pitching in can improve your health. And in populations over 50, it's easier to think about the correlation. If you think about people, she writes, who have gone through life transitions like retirement, becoming bereaved or no longer having children. They might not have social connections. So she says volunteer work gives us social uh, connections. It gets us out of the house. But also that there is something in your brain that when you're helping other people and you're giving to other people that promotes uh, health, it it kind of helps some things like depression and other things. I think it's fascinating that uh, that psychologists and brain scientists and people uh, not even coming necessarily from a biblical worldview are finding things that the Bible is kind of teaching us as well. I think this is really fascinating. That's something in your brain, Brian, by the way, is something called the Holy Spirit. There you go. I just want to make sure that you are theologically aligned with go. this particular as <laughs> as your brain science friend. I feel, <laughs> I feel friend. obligated to. Uh, OK, so here's to me uh, where all of this kind of comes to the head. It says uh, it goes beyond the act of volunteering. 
altruism in many forms from donating money to a worthy cause to just random acts of kindness have been shown to light up the same reward centers of the brain associated with food and sex. Helping others is a natural high that our brains are wired for, which again, and maybe this, maybe the angle for us now is I so rarely hear churches even talk about these facts. It's almost always couched as a, Hey, we should, or this is a part of what it means to be a community or, you know, Jesus lived a life of sacrifice. We should too, which are all true. But I wonder if like for the skeptic in the crowd, if we didn't say, Hey, even if you're not into this Jesus or Bible stuff yet, what if, what if we just threw some stats on the screen? Yeah. Like you are physiologically, neurologically wired for this. And by giving, by seeing your whole life as something to, to gift to the world, you actually reap the benefits yeah. like that. I think to me, I have never heard a sermon or a preacher like take that particular angle, from taking from a selfish angle that says, okay, you person here, like you said, who's not team Jesus, who's not trying to, you know, uh, leave and follow what Jesus has called us to you're, you're want to be self-serving. You want to be healthy. You want to be happy. Uh, let me tell you how that, how psychologists and, um, are seeing that best accomplished. Mm. I think that's a fascinating tact to just say, okay, uh, let me tell you if you're completely self-serving and you just want your best life now, let me tell you what they're telling us could be a way to that. Maybe not Boom. call them self-serving. Maybe not. Maybe not. That's a, sure. little, that's a little on the nose. But you think about even like advertising tactics. Yep. Most advertising is meant to convince you that this is the thing that'll make your life better. I really think I'm super inspired by this, actually. What if yeah. we actually began to do more mining? What if the church was at the forefront of some of this brain research? Like, hey, listen, just come serve with us. Yep. And who doesn't want less stress? Right. Who doesn't mm-hmm. want to like add to their life? Who doesn't want better blood pressure? Who doesn't yeah. want all, all of those things? Like, I, I don't know. There's something to, I think, diving beneath some of the science that I like you had said, I find so affirming that. Yeah. When scientists and doctors are affirming the things that like mystics and monastics and the prophets have been saying yep. is like, Oh, even thousands of years ago, they were onto stuff. There yep. was things that they knew supernaturally, maybe that we're now learning now with modern science. And I think that, that to me is just super inspiring. Yeah. It's kind of like when like archeology span affirms things in the Bible that we believe, right? You're like, okay, there's like the outside confirmation here. Like this is uh, in the same way, like, you know, Jesus is constantly talking about giving of yourself uh, whether it be your time, your resources, or just your yourself, your life, giving, right. giving, giving to others, uh, and and we often think of it. I think like you, I think you nailed it. We we kind of teach that to be done at kind of begrudgingly, like yeah, hey, do this because Jesus said so. <laughs> do this because Jesus will be happy with you. Or we try to like really ramp up the excitement of the event, like you're yeah. gonna want to be a part of it. That's a good point, you know. But, but hey. Uh, we believe in counseling. We believe in all this stuff, but here's something else we believe for you to be a healthy person Hmm. is giving to other people. I do. I'm with you, man. I've literally never heard that from a pulpit a day in my life. It's a little how we talk about generosity. Sometimes though, we'll say uh, ultimately what we want. We want something for you, not from you. Mm. You know, when we talk about money, people like, ah, they're trying to get my money. And we're like, what if we told you that by loosening your white knuckle grip on your stuff or your finances, there's actually all sorts of benefits and we want that for you. Yeah. Even if you're not bought into this whole spiritual side of it yet. And I think I'd love to know just in 30 seconds or less, how do you talk about volunteering at your church? Like what's sort of your general Brian Fromm approach? Yeah. I, I try to speak of it as an opportunity, but I'm not sure I do it well. I actually mm-hmm. think I speak about financial generosity a lot better than I do about volunteering and oh, giving really? of your time. 
I think I do. And so this is this is challenging to me. This is good because it is uh, it is speaking of it as an opportunity as opposed to like I think a lot of times it's like, hey, we need you to do this. Yeah. As opposed to, hey, we're going to give you an opportunity and let me give you some of the stats to back around, to back it up and the verses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that's really good. Coming up next on the phone, Stu Fullendorf, who is an author and a pastor with an absolutely incredible story of making a fortune, losing it all, addiction, finding Jesus in the midst of chaos. I I think this is a story you're absolutely going to want to hear. And that's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. You can call us 312-660-2594. And very recently, thanks to our producer John on Twitter, at Common Good Talk. And maybe my favorite part of the show is we just get to interview so many interesting, interesting people, yeah. people that otherwise I don't think we'd ever have a chance to meet. So we have on the phone Stu Fullendorf, author and pastor. Stu, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it's Absolutely. our pleasure. One of the things I love to have guests do, too, is because uh, I know that you guys have to do all these interviews probably all the time, and you get used to the same introductions and the same bio. I want to give you a chance just to introduce yourself uh, to our audience, however you would like to do that. Oh, great. Well, I'm Stu, and I, um, a an author, wrote a book called Wall Street to the Well, uh, was a, a non-believing um, person, hmm. so a non-Christian, where I was a businessman, took three companies public, and then the Lord Jesus pulled me up and saved me And when I was 43 years old, and um, now I'm a senior pastor. And so wow. as part of that, I decided it was a story that was worth glorifying yeah. God and telling the story, and so I wrote the book. In the bio, it talks about how, uh, like you said, between the age of 30 and 44, you've taken three companies public. So it says self-sufficiency was your God. And then it all fell apart. I'm more curious when things were going really well, like when in that age 30 to 44, we often hear about people still saying like it felt like something was missing. Uh, was there something missing? Did you even know then when things were going well that there was something missing or did it take kind of everything crashing before that realization came? No, I knew there was something missing because I was accomplishing everything that I thought I wanted when I went to business school and was was fortunate to have some gifts that God gave me. And um, by the time I was 31, we took our first pu- company public, a company called EFTC, and then took more two more companies public after that, including two high-flying tech companies, particularly the last one. And while I was accomplishing everything that I wanted, I had a sense of dissatisfaction that as mm-hmm. I was accomplishing these things... Uh, I wasn't happy and I wasn't satisfied. And so I, I was discouraged. Hmm. So one of the things that I find really interesting about your story and you, you write about this a little bit is this seduction of success and our staff just did a couple of days on the Enneagram and I'm a three. So the achiever and the allure and drive for success, at least for me is like ever present. It's, it's always there. I'm, I'm curious. Could you talk a little more uh, about this idea of the seduction of success and what you've, what you've learned in your own experience? Well, I, I thought that um, accomplishing everything from a material perspective would add value and, and, and meaning to my life. Hmm. And so uh, unlike maybe some other people where they're, they're always having this, this allure and this dream, 
I, I, what I wanted actually was happening to me. Mm. And so I was, um, I became a millionaire and I, I, you know, bought that British racing ring Jaguar as a, right. as a trophy to myself and the darn thing broke up, broke down coming, pulling out of the parking lot of the no dealership. Way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Beautiful car, beautiful car when it was running though. Uh, <laughs> so, oh, that's awful. Uh, you know, I built a mahogany bar in the basement of my got my home on the golf course. And I, I was drinking my way through life and mm. I was eating my way through life. And, and, and as I was, as I was accomplishing, you know, these things, I became a board member of a public company with a guy, Dick Monfort, who was the owner of Colorado Rockies and Robert McNamara. So I was actually accomplishing the things that I thought I wanted. Mm. And as I was accomplishing and gaining these material goods and, and status in life, I had this underlying sense of vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. Mm. Uh, what, what, what's this all, what's this all adding up to? Yeah. And, so that's what was going on. Yeah, it says then in the midst of your personal unraveling, you had an encounter with Christ. I really want to hear that story. What did that encounter look like? Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, I had, we had grown the first company that we had taken public to about 1,400 employees in Denver and facilities wow. all over the, 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 actually the world. And I was in charge of corporate development, CFO, and, and it was doing, we did nine merger and acquisition de- deals in three years, and it wasn't enough. And I was unhappy because I wasn't, even though we were, we were um, named the number one public company in Colorado by the Denver Post. Wow. And so I moved our family to Seattle in 2000, took another company public called MetaWave. And then in 2004, it, it, and my wife became a Christian in the late 90s, and oh. her life started to transform. Hmm. And so we had a very difficult time period from about 97 to about 2006, although wow. about 2004, my heart started to soften. And so it was, the, it was actually on the third company, a company called Isilon, which is now the company that basically furnishes all the digital storage for YouTube and Facebook, and it's worth billions and billions of dollars as wow. part of EMC Dell, that we took, we're taking that company public that after years of of, of searching and being an arguing atheist and my wife praying for me and all of that. It was actually in the middle of the roadshow of Isilon systems that God saved me. Mm. That I became a Christian. Okay. And so the, real quickly, the story of that is we were in, in London, England, and we were taking a company public. It's called an IPO. And we were doing what's called a roadshow where we're out selling about 10 meetings a day of, of public stock until it's priced. And then the stock's made public for, for public trading. And we're halfway through that IPO roadshow and we were at a Indian restaurant and I was a big drinker and an eater. And um, we were walking down Soho after dinner and one of the investment bankers pointed up to a window and said, see that yellow star in that window? And this is Market Street in London. That's where Marx wrote his communist manifesto. Wow. And yeah, it was very, very, very interesting. And then one of the guys kind of joked, the investment banker from Morgan Stanley joked and said, well, it's a good thing Marx didn't have that right. And we all kind of chuckled. <laughs> but, then, but then one of the investment bankers said, uh, but he did have one thing right, and that's that um, religion is the opiate of the masses. Right, kind of, right. Yeah. I kind of nodded and said, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so we went back to the Savoy Hotel, and, and I didn't do my usual nightcap in the bar, and I went to the hotel room and I sat in that um, lambskin upholstery chair and <laughs> so, so my hotel and I thought what would the world be like without Jesus Christ my wife's life had been transformed wow. I had I had seen things I'd listened to some sermons by a, a man at a church in Seattle called Mars Hill Church and and uh, 
and I thought, well, what would the world be like without Jesus Christ? Yeah, it's broken. Yeah, it's fallen. But what it be, would it be worth like without Jesus Christ? And it was mm-hmm. that moment that I felt the Holy Spirit. I felt um, the wave coming over me, and I wow. repented and cried. And wow. at the age of 43, came to Christ and, and, and sobbed in the hotel room all night and repented and wow. and, and became a Christian. That That's powerful. how I became a Christian. That's a remarkable story. There's a, there's a couple of things about that story that I find so fascinating because at my church community, we have a number of people who had experiences kind of like that who are in the business sector and had this radical encounter. But you, you talk about like this nine year window where your, your wife had been saved and it was creating some tensions. And then even I love that you identified that there was a, even a two year gap from when your heart began to soften to this like transformative moment. So I'm curious kind of now, because of the, a lot of the questions I get, particularly from young leaders is how, how can I have both success in business or ministry and success at home. Sometimes it feels like it's got to be either or. And how do you define success in those two kind of worlds? And what advice would you give to people who are like, I don't know that I'm in balance right now, but I want to do both really well. Well, I learned in my own life, again, I, I be, going from being a public company CFO of three companies to being a senior pastor of a church is not necessary. Unless it's God's call in your life. Yeah. But, but, I, but I learned it, it really is a, a, a product of where our heart lies. And, and you know, Place Pascal talks about having that, that um, vacuum-shaped hole in our heart and anything that fills it other than Jesus Christ is really an idol. Yeah. And so, so um, I, w- I don't speak against um, people, you know, um, enjoying God's good gifts and having gift, the gifts of business and, and, you know, communication radio or whatever, that, that um, if Jesus is the, uh, is, the, is the Lord of our life, then we can enjoy his good gifts and glorify him and, and, and not make those material possessions our, our idols. And that's, that's really the crux of my book, which is where, where are we gaining our self-sufficiency yeah. and our satisfaction? If, if, if it's in our work, if it's in our career, if it's in um, these, these things, and that's the number one priority in life, our kids' performance, you name it. If those are our number one priorities in life, we're going to be going down the wrong path. Yeah. If if Jesus is is our is, is is our Lord and Savior, then we can have a great career in business. We can have millions of dollars. It's not where our heart mm-hmm. is. We can we can help. We can serve, and uh, and you know we can be um, enjoying God's good gifts and yeah. have and have both. Yeah. So in the last minute or two that we have, I'm just curious because uh, so you go from Wall Street and this hard charging thing eventually into being a senior pastor of a church. I think one of the dirty secrets that people don't realize is that pastors can have the same struggles with pride, yeah. idolatry, uh-huh. success, being too um, hard charging. Do you ever struggle with that as a pastor? How do you guard yourself against that as a pastor now? Never. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. <laughs> right. Like, like when don't I, yeah, exactly. uh, you know, the, the, you know, it, I hope it's not, I hope one of the things we're doing at our church is, is kind of outing that dirt, dirty secret. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I struggle with it all the time because we, as Christians, we are attacked from three different sources. We're attacked by the world, which tells us in our culture that having much in material items is how you gain, you know, your, your value. Mm. We're, we're attacked by Satan who every time we turn around and we, we serve in, in our church and our church is growing like a weed, we get attacked. And then we're attacked by the flesh mm. where I look and say, what in the heck am I doing making what I'm making when I could be at the peak, my peak earning years, making all this more money and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and I get, I get pulled to, away from Christ and towards those things. And then at the same time, you write books and you, you know, you might have some giftings in other areas. And then all of a sudden your pride, you know, take, takes over. And C.S. Lewis said, um, pride, 
is the sin that makes all other sins seem like mere flea bites. Right. Augustine said that pride is a pregnant mother that gives birth to all sin. Yeah. So, other than that, you know, it's it's easy to be a pastor, but yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. Those things, those those things are a part of the pastor's life, and 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 I have learned maybe more so than even in other our areas. So again, it's it's about Jesus being the center of our lives. It's great. Well, you've been listening to Stu Fullendorf, the author of Wall Street to the Well, author and pastor of Redemption Hills Church in Littleton, Colorado. Stu, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure, guys. And a perfect segue coming up next. Meritocracy prizes achievement above all else, making everyone, even the rich, miserable. Maybe there's a better way out. We're going to talk about that coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Michael Simpkins. I don't think I've ever given you my middle name. Uh, you have. I have? Yes. Now, I would not have remembered it, but I did know it. When Actually, my middle it. name is Modest Mouse. It is not. Nope. Have you seen my birth certificate? Nope. You don't know my life. Nope. Let's just get progressively quieter and quieter. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Nope. Driving you home on a Thursday. (laughs) Do you remember? You give me so many. You give me so many middle names. Do you actually remember what my middle name is? Hmm. Is it biblical? Yes. Is it two syllables? No. How long did you need to think about that question? <laughs> do you, when you do what? syllables, do you have to like count them? No. I do. I still do. I still do. So I'm assuming maybe because of the length, it's longer than just two. Just so we get this done, my name is Brian Bathsheba from. It's just, you know. Uh, Bathsheba, I knew it. How quickly I forget. Because you had a, uh, a bathing industry in the family line, right? The, that where that, that's the, not where that came so my from. My actual middle name is James, which I've told you before, so... You took that long to think about the syllables of your middle name, James. Like, is it James or <laughs> <laughs> J? I mean, Jimmy, yep. Brian, Jimmy from yep. yep. let's yep. end yep. this nonsense. You can find us on Facebook at the common good radio show, 1160 hope.com slash the common good. And uh, I teed it up a little bit. I'm going to read the whole headline. It's out of the Atlantic. It's uh, a long article. I but would it's, encourage people to read it. It's, it's worth the deep dive. It's really good. So the headline is, is kind of clickbaity a little bit. It says how life became an endless, terrible competition, which maybe a lot of people you, you even mentioned in youth sports, how that's kind of become a thing. But yep. the subheading says meritocracy prizes achievement above all else, making everyone, even the rich miserable. Yes. Maybe there's a way out. What's going on here? So I would encourage people. Sometimes the articles are short enough that we can read them all for you, but this one we're just going to be able to touch on. It's like five or six pages long. Uh, And so I'd encourage you to go to the Atlantic. Uh, It's from August 19th called How Life Became an Endless Terrible Competition, especially if you're a parent. I think you need to read this Um, because it begins to trace how how we are just uh, driven by competition and meritocracy from an earlier and earlier age. Uh, And this just blew my mind, man. It says this rich parents in cities like New York, Boston and San Francisco now commonly apply to 10 kindergartens running a gauntlet of essays, appraisals and interviews all designed to evaluate four year olds. Oh, man. Crazy, crazy. One of the other underlying threads here is that while the wealthy have a step up in this meritocracy, there's more doors open for them. Uh, they also feel the burden because they're having to stay up top. It's this weird. I'd encourage you to read it again. It's this weird dynamic. But then it goes on to talk about how now at elite middle schools and high schools, their kids are getting three to five hours of homework a night. Hmm. How colleges are, are um, 
Uh, it says University of Chicago at one point in its in its history let in seventy one percent of applicants. It now lets in six percent. Wow! And this whole meritocracy, and then it's like not just by the time we get to college, we even talked about athletics or music or anything. Yeah, no but kidding. then when kids get out of school, out of college, then they're really just starting because if they want to remain wealthy and get in these jobs, like a lawyer. Uh, it used to talk about billable hours. The American Bar Association, it says here, used to talk about 1,300 hours a year. It now talks about 2,400 hours a year. And to do the math, if somebody were to work 2,400 billable hours, uh, uh, that would be that would require a person to work from 8 a.m. until 8 p.m., six days a week, every week of the year without vacation or sick days. Bankers hours used to be 10 to 3. Now they're known as 9 to 5. And it just keeps going and going and going. Uh, And so uh, it says here, Americans who work more than 60 hours a week week report that they would on average prefer 25 fewer weekly hours. Hmm. And so I can't get into all this stuff here, but it's basically saying we are working ourselves to death. We're killing our kids with expectations with this meritocracy. We're killing our kids as they get a little bit older with pressure that the that the more successful wealthy kids have higher rates of depression, of physical illness, of stress, uh, and then when they get out of college, it only gets worse. And the the point of the article here is we've got to do something to get off this rat race uh, because we're not heading in a good direction. And I feel it, even though I'm not in this wealthy kind of like meritocracy go. I feel it with with even how schools are different now for my kids than when I was a kid. Um, and, and just in our own lives, this is, uh, this is really something, this is really something about just this competitive drive in our culture to do more, make more, achieve more, uh, is really making our standard of living that much worse. Well, and, and just to be clear, like, I don't think, I don't really think we're a meritocracy in the first place, right? Meritocracy is, it's like the, it's, it's the holding of power by people based on ability, right? So when you think about, who gets who goes viral on YouTube or who uh you know lands the record deal or who it's not always the most talented no. person it's not always the per- the person with the most ability in fact it rarely is so it's uh, it's a whole lot more of who you know this is back to some of the conversations we've had about yeah. networking and some of those other things there's but the I, old saying that some people are born on third base and some people have to hit a triple to get there like yeah right there's a difference or the saying that I've heard is it's easy to think you've hit a home run when you've been born on third there you, you know go. like yeah hey, everyone's got to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or like you didn't get there on your own yep. here's where to me, the whole thing kind of hangs in this one sentence. Meritocracy traps entire generations inside demeaning fears and inauthentic ambitions, always hungry but never finding or even knowing the right food. Mm. That, to me, sounds so close to gospel, sounds so Ecclesiastes. So I kept going after these things thinking, surely on the other side of this mountain, I'm going to find peace or identity yep. or purpose or rest. And I think uh, there's actually a couple of TED Talks. Uh, Sean Aker has one. That's incredible. He talks about the science of happy and he says in his research at Harvard, how quite literally our brain is wired for setting a goalpost. And the moment we achieve that goalpost, it just scooches it out. Just farther. keep going. So if your brain is, if I could just make this much annually, then I'd be set. Then I'd yep. be at peace. We're hardwired that once you're making that much, it just moves the goalpost yep. 10, 15, 20 grand further out. Square footage, social media yep. reach, size of your yep. church, any, any of those things. There's more and more research that finds this treadmill actually is not making us healthier. Nope. It's making us sicker. And it's kind of the the old Rockefeller quote, right? Wealthiest man in America. Someone asks him, John, how much is enough? 
And his answer was just a little bit more. Just a little more. I've, I've used it on here and in my sermons about generosity that there's an old study that said it literally broke it down by every, I think, $10,000. And everyone from making $10,000 to making over a million dollars, they were asked the same question. How much more money do you need to be content? And every single one of those brackets said the exact same answer was number one. It was 10% more. 10% just, more. And that, that is the mm. exact thing that you're saying. Just a little bit more. If I just had a little bit more. So you're making 10 grand and you go, if I just made a little bit more, you're making a million. You're saying if I just made a little bit more. Yeah, right. Well, that's exactly what you're saying because then you, that never stops. See, this is kind of this is kind of connected to uh, not to harken back too much, but we talked about setting up Christmas decorations too early and yes. this idea that like we're better. Our souls are better when we learn gratitude and we can learn to kind of rest in what it is that we already have. And this it's sort of like no one's rich, but everyone knows someone who is yes. right. It's always somebody else when, you know, when Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, teach those who are rich. We're all like, well, not me. He's not talking about me. Yes, like, yeah, yes. yeah. Like, we, like we are this. I, I just want to read this paragraph because I think it's so good because this is where I kind of want to land. Like, how do we get out of this then? Right. It's easy right. for us to say the gospel. Jesus frees us from that. But, yep. you know, how, though? It says escaping the meritocracy trap will not be easy. Elites naturally resist policies that threaten to undermine their advantages. That makes sense. But it is simply not possible to get rich off your own human capital without exploiting yourself and impoverishing your inner life. And meritocrats who hope to have their cake and eat it to deceive themselves, building a society in which a good education and good jobs are available to a broader swath of people so that reaching the very highest rungs of the ladder is simply less important is the only way to ease the strains that now drive the elite to cling to their mm. status. Man, do you have any hope that we'll get there? No, I, it, it takes a work of the Holy Spirit, right? It takes a work of Jesus uh, to say it, it's why the Bible talks so much about contentment mm. and why the Bible talks so much about rest. How many times on this show have we talked about Sabbath and rest? Yeah, because uh, all of these are antidotes to what we're talking about here, but they are just not natural. And uh, yeah, I, you know, do I think we as a culture are going to change? I don't. Mm. But but we better change as churches like churches better, better start swimming counterculturally on this one. Yeah, I think you're right, man. I'll just end with this. So how can that be done? For one thing, education whose benefits are concentrated in the extravagantly trained children of rich parents must become open and inclusive. Private schools and universities should maybe lose their tax exempt status unless at least half of their students come from families in the bottom two thirds of the income distribution. Wow. Public subsidies should encourage schools to meet this requirement by expanding enrollment. That stuff way above my pay grade, but I, I got to be honest, crazy. I'm gonna go read more about this. Like yeah. I'm, I'm inspired to learn more. How, how can we actually overcome this and actually help our people yes. do the same? I'm, I'm super encouraged. Theatlantic.com, or we'll put it on our Facebook page, or we already have put it on our Facebook yes, page. Yes, right can take on. A look there. Well, coming up next, we're going to land this plane the way that we always do with some interweb insanities and stuff that uh, I'm a little frightened. I've seen Keith's face twice today, and He's got a sparkle in his eye, but our producers chose them. We have not read them. We're going to read them sight unseen and just see what happens. That's coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. I don't know why I sound more tired this time. Probably because I am. But that energy, though, that music always gives me energy because I know... 
that we're in store for some interweb insanity. You think because we know we're going home soon. <laughs> That's kind of your outro. I, it's hard. How do I not take that personally? Can't wait to get out of this room with Ian. He is driving no, me. I can't wait to get to my family. How's that sound? Oh, is that better? Yeah, my ego will allow that okay. to be true. Okay. Uh, so if you're just joining us for the first time, first off, hello. Welcome. Uh, second off, we end the show the same way every day with some interweb insanity. Our producers found some articles. And uh, we have not read them. We haven't even caught a whisper of what they are. They've also brought sound effects. So we're experiencing all of this with you. If we stumble on our words or giggle like children or weep uncontrollably, it's all real because we don't know what's happening. And uh, this is always the most scary part of the show. Brian Fromm, take it away. England. Cow escapes slaughterhouse, runs loose through British city. Well, good for that cow. A cow escaped from a British slaughterhouse and went for a run through a city, becoming a social media celebrity in the process. The young brown cow was spotted running near the M6 highway toward the center of Carlisle Wednesday after escaping from the West Scottish Lamb Limited slaughterhouse. That's a really cute name for a slaughterhouse. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, let's go to the West Scottish Lamb Limited. Slaughterhouse. (laughs) <laughs> Twitter users nicknamed the cow Daisy, obviously, and used the hashtag hashtag Save Carlisle Cow to call for the bovine to be sla- uh, spared from slaughter. Cumbria police said officers located the cow and made the decision to shoot and kill the animal. <laughs> <laughs> Efforts were made to resolve, <laughs> given the potential danger <laughs> and the increased stress of the animal. Oh God! On the animal, a decision was taken to conclude the incident as quickly and humanely as possible. There is a there is a there's a McDonald's bit coming here. I think. I'm sure of it. Don't kid yourself, Jimmy. If a cow ever got the chance, he'd eat you and everyone you care about. I don't mean to laugh at the. Honestly, what made me laugh so much was just how you read it. Like you started the sentence, and you're like, "Here we go." I really thought that they were going to spare the cow. Yeah, because there was a hashtag and a oh, name, and then man. it just sort of like, "Yeah, he did." Okay. <laughs> All right, Canada. Uh, man walks out of elevator after nine-story drop. Oh, what? no. This no. is my nightmare. Witnesses say a man has escaped serious injuries after an incident on a downtown Edmonton elevator. Edmonton fire rescue crews received a call that an elevator had fallen, holy cow, nine stories just after 1.30 p.m. I can't imagine that. No, that I'm. my heart is beating so fast right now. A worker in the building told CTV News the man was on the 10th floor. Yeah, we can do math. Uh, the witness, <laughs> <laughs> the witnesses say the man managed to walk out of the elevator on his own after firefighters pried open the elevator doors but was complaining of back pain. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm going to need a change of clothes. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That one's crazy. Oh, geez. California, man arrested while attempting to fix flat tires with gauze and Band-Aids. Arrested? I don't know why. Orange County Sheriff's deputies responding Tuesday to a report of a suspicious man next to a parked SUV arrived to find him attempting an unusual and ineffective method to fix a flat tire. The man was trying to patch two damaged tires using gauze and Band-Aids. A citizen reported the suspicious man next to the vehicle near Felipe Road uh, around 6 a.m. When deputies arrived, they found both driver's side tires were flat and the 26-year-old man trying to repair them. The man was res- was arrested. It always is this on suspicion of being under the influence of drugs. The suspect's identity was not released. It's all ball bearings nowadays. Now you prepare that Fetzer valve with some uh, three-in-one oil and some gauze pads. And I'm going to need about ten quarts of antifreeze, preferably Presto. No, don't make that Quaker state. Name the movie. Could you say? Uh, well, hold on. Before I forget, was he arrested without gauze? Is this an example of gauze in effect? Keep going. 
I learned that that was good. I wonder if he was the Wizard of Gauze. That was good. I'm all out. That what was the movie? Was the movie was um, was what? Fletch. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right on. Florida. I can't not say Florida like that Florida. now. Florida. Oh, you've you've. I can't get away from it. Dead battery thwarts Walmart scooter getaway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that got me so giggled. Uh, after boosting a Walmart electric courtesy cart from a store in St. Petersburg, a tipsy Florida man, there it is again, drove the Hot Wheels nearly a mile before cops apprehended him as he tried to recharge the cart at a gas station. John Davis, 59, living his best life now, is jailed on a felony grand theft charge in connection with his alleged swiping of the $1,500 vehicle late Saturday evening. He's gradually getting away, Chief. <laughs> He's grad. That's Good. what is that movie from? Or that I have no idea. From? That sounds like The Simpsons, but I have no idea. It's Simpsons. He's okay. JB's giving us the nod. One, two for two. We're going to end, but before we do, let me just say that I saw this one on Twitter, and what did I say to you? We're going to be reading this at you the end. Said, of the I show. bet this is a kicker. You did, and uh, we're getting. Into, we're now into Keith's brain. Oh, it's a scary place. New Hampshire. After waiting fifty years to open time capsule, New Hampshire residents found there was nothing in it. Residents in the New Hampshire community of Derry waited 50 years to open an old time capsule, and they were definitely surprised by what they found inside. When Kara Potter started her job as a library director five years ago, the town's time capsule, sealed in 1969, sat safely on a shelf. Nobody touched it until last spring. (laughs) On the 50th anniversary, they opened it. I was considering running a library program around opening it, so I wanted to open it to make sure we could actually physically do it. The combination for the safe was conveniently posted on the back of the capsule. It took us several tries to get it open because we had the combination and it's an older safe. So by the time we actually got it open, there were a number of staff people standing around and waiting. To everyone's surprise, (laughs) it was empty. We were a little horrified to find that there was nothing in it. Dairy uh, historians and town officials were notified. As it turned out, no one holds a list of what even was originally put in there. You get nothing. (laughs) You lose Good day, sir. Good day, sir. That's one of my favorite Willy lines. Wonka. Willy Wonka. Man, go. what a performance. Well, it's never a dull moment here. I hope you'll join us tomorrow for the very first hour. We have a very special guest in the studio, Graveyards to Gardens. They're going to share some songs off their record. They're going to talk about their life and ministry. It's going to be a really great time. So glad that you joined us today. Hope you join us again tomorrow on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.